In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were to uh, peek inside uh, Daphne's closet, Daphne is our daughter who's um, almost four, you know, you would see some normal little girl clothes and dresses and sweaters and, and, and whatnot, but more than, any, more than anything else, what you would see is a, a long category of royal gowns with diamonds and rubies and jewels all over them. She sort of just rotates these gowns throughout each day of her life, moving from one kind of royalty to the next, you know. And when we play together, it's, it's um, dad, you be king, or actually mom and dad will be any, whatever she needs, some, but something royal. Mom will be the prince and dad will be the queen, or mom will be uh, the king and dad will be the prince, or whatever it is. In her imagination, Daphne lives in royalty. I can't help but think that this is true of every little girl and boy. There's something about royalty at a mythic level almost that haunts us. Girls play as princesses, boys play as king of the hill. But one way or the other, it seems like we are haunted by royalty. What makes this sad is that when we grow up, the reality of leadership in our lives is quite different. Nothing ever lives up, no leader ever lives up to the kind of king or queen or princess or prince that we can imagine. Is that true? The romance of royalty and the reality of human leadership, within that there's a gap, major gap. Today's the feast of Christ the King, and on this final Sunday of the liturgical season, we remember that there is only one figure in all of human history who closes the gap between the romance of royalty and the reality of historical leadership, and it is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Here are some reflections all flowing from our lessons today, the Jeremiah passage, Colossians passage, the gospel reading from Luke. They all teach us something about Jesus as king, the one leader who closes the gap. And it's this, in a word, it's Jesus is a unique king. He is a unique ruler in five ways. He's got a unique pedigree, a unique position, a unique power, a unique purpose as king, and a unique people, perhaps the best news of all, because that involves us. Take your Scripture outline, your Scripture uh, insert. Follow along with me as we sort of jump from passage to passage. All of these selections from the Scriptures have been lined up for us on this Feast of Christ the King for a reason. Let's begin with the pedigree, the unique past of our King Jesus. You know, I'm a fan of singer-songwriters like uh, James Taylor and Jackson Brown and Patty Griffin and Paul Simon, on and on. One of my favorite things to do is to hear them or watch them on YouTube discuss the story behind their songs. 
So I know James Taylor's music. I know the melody. I love the lyrics. I've got them memorized. But when I hear James talk about his song, about living in North Carolina and growing up uh, and, and, and the, the countryside and the traveling stories behind his, his songs, it brings a whole new layer of meaning. This is what I mean when I say that Jesus the King has a unique pedigree. This is the story behind the song that is Jesus Christ. Where do we see that? This is what the Jeremiah passage gives us a hint of. In Jeremiah 23, God is speaking to Israel, and He's speaking about Israel's evil kings. In a sense, this is the necessity of Jesus the King. This is the reality of poor leadership all throughout history, but we take just a snapshot of it in the life of Israel. And God tells Israel, Israel, the kings who have ruled you, they've been awful. They're like crooked shepherds. Woe to the shepherds, He says, the top of the passage, who destroy and scatter the sheep of My pasture. And then on further down the passage, in light of these awful kings, God says, I want you to know that the days are surely coming, near the end of the passage, verse 5, when I, God, will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel thrash about in chaos because there is a discrepancy between the romance of royalty and the reality of the leadership guiding them. Jesus would be the missing piece. Friends, did you know that the whole story of the Bible could be summed up in this phrase, a king and a kingdom, a king and a kingdom. Jesus is the aha moment of the whole story of the Bible. He's the missing piece that brings God's kingdom fully to this earth. Zechariah sang it in our canticle today. Through God's holy prophets, He promised of old. Jesus is showing up as the answer to God's promise for centuries. The truth of Jesus' unique pedigree shows that He is the missing piece. He's the leader that we've all been waiting for, hoping on, dreaming of. And with every new leader who crosses history's threshold, there's another letdown because these leaders are human. And so let us remember and praise King Jesus because He's the one we've been waiting on. He's got a unique pedigree, a unique story. Second, Jesus is a king with a unique position. Jump down to the epistle reading, Colossians 1, 11 and following. What is unique about the position of Jesus in a word, Paul gives, uses this word, He is the firstborn. Look at verses 15 through 17. The firstborn of all creation. In Him all things in heaven and on earth were created, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, Verse 17, He Himself is before all things. In Him all things hold together. Verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. The name firstborn can feel confusing, but what Paul means here is somewhat commonsensical. It means head, source, preeminent one, 
leader, exclusive in his position. And not just over created things, but over all things, even things we can't see. This king's position is greater than any other leader who has ever ruled. He's the firstborn. In 1925, in the wake of World War I, Pope Pius XI instituted today's feast days. There aren't many feast days in the liturgical calendar that have a a history that's so recent. It might interest you to know that Pope Pius instituted this feast for a very particular reason. He saw in the church and in the world a spirit after World War I of divisive nationalism, you know, individualism that was growing all over the world. So he wanted to remind the church and the world that no matter what force was vying for power, no matter what leader was vying for power on the world stage, that only Christ, only Christ in His cosmic position would ensure that He reigned and ruled over all things. Here it is in a a phrase, the position of Christ's kingship is not local or regional or national or international. It is cosmic, cosmic, according to Colossians 1. Uh, You may be the king You may be the king with the greatest treasure chest, the largest and most sophisticated army, but Jesus Christ has still won up to you. All the other kings might say with Shakespeare's King Henry that uneasy lies the head who wears the what? The crown, but not Jesus. His position is altogether different from other rulers. Third, he has a unique power, a unique power. What is this power that King Jesus has? We find it um, in the Colossians passage again. It's not just power over life and death. All kings have power. All kings get to decide who lives and who dies. We find out in Colossians that Jesus' power, unique as it is, literally births life itself. That Jesus' power in His resurrection from the dead is over death itself. Jesus says elsewhere, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. Our king, friends, doesn't just have power over who lives and dies. Our king has power over life and death itself. Here's another aspect to King Jesus' unique power. It's not just over things, but the power of Jesus, according to our lessons today, can reach into every human heart and change it, transform it, wipe away the stain. This is when our canticle says, for example, that the way of Jesus, Zechariah sings, is to give people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Paul says it this way, Christ has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What other king, what other ruler, what other leader can wipe away the guilt that you carry? 
So again, you may be the king with the largest treasure chest and all the political strategists in the world seated around your table, but if Alexander Solzhenitsyn is right, that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes of people, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart, then there's only one king who has more power than anyone else. It's the king who can change the human heart, Jesus Christ. Fourth, Jesus is a king with a unique purpose. He's got a past, a pedigree, a position. He has a purpose. Perhaps it goes without saying that a king should have his citizens' best interest in mind, right? But you know as well as I the figures in history for whom this was not true. Nero, Caligula, Ivan the Terrible, Stalin, Hitler, these leaders, rulers were selfish, abusive, even psychotic, but not King Jesus. He rules with a unique purpose. It's not selfish, it's selfless. We see this in our gospel lesson, Luke 23 and following. It's the story simply of Jesus on the cross. In this story, in this moment, in all of Luke's gospel, we see the power of God on display unlike at any other time. We see on display the purpose for which Jesus came in Luke's gospel. What is that purpose? It was our rescue, friends. Jesus' purpose was not his own uh, grandiosity. It was our good. Far from being a moment of defeat, this story of the crucifixion is actually a moment of this king's victory. Because though our king had the power to save himself with loving restraint, he suffered that death might die. He has a unique purpose as king. Now, power and leadership and authority and government, these words string them all together, I would imagine carry for each of us some measure of, of pessimism, perhaps even utter cynicism. Coaches, teachers, policemen, parents, politicians, even priests, all these figures of power in our world have let us down. They've let us down, have they not? In fact, some of us don't even know the experience of power without its abusive purpose. So all the more reasons today, friends, to look to King Jesus, who rules with a different purpose. Finally, our king has a unique people. Most kings bring uh, to themselves the healthy, the wealthy, the wise, but Jesus is the king of the losers. He's the king of the losers. Notice in the gospel text that on his way into death, Jesus claims as one of his own, not a rich person, not a famous person, a proud person, but a criminal who cries, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
I hope you've noticed this theme on repeat in Luke's gospel, by the way. All this year, we've told stories of how upside down this king's kingdom is. Remember, it started with a crazy prophet, John the Baptist. It moves to a virgin mother, miracle, Mary. It moves on to a lost coin and a lost brother, a dinner party with losers to a wedding banquet with misfits. This is Luke's gospel, and every Sunday he's been saying, Jesus, the doctor, came not for the healthy but the sick, not for the sinners but righteous, just like this criminal. So while all the kings of the world surround themselves with nobility, our king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, chooses the least of these people like you and me. On this feast of Christ the King, then, may we revel in a different kind of royalty, a different kind of king, one with a heavenly pedigree, cosmic position, sacrificial purpose, the power to literally change the human heart, wiping away our sins, and one who claims for his own a people whose cry for help sounds a lot like this criminal's. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom. Amen.